Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you're a young person today, you see heartbreak. I turn on the radio today. I hear Justin Bieber singing about loneliness. I hear rap songs just talking about heartache. Pop culture itself is screaming out for help. It is just remarkable how much hurt there is. So I think just looking around and saying, this isn't normal and something else is possible. I have to find a way out of this so that I can find a new normal for myself that isn't so painful. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute. And today with me is another doctor and a friend, Anna Samuel, Academic Director of Canavox. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Anna, welcome to our show. Today, you've accepted our invitation to talk about your important work at Canavox, both nationally and internationally. Before we do so, though, let me just say a couple of words about you. Dr. Anna Samuel is a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Notre Dame, where she completed a doctoral work on the political theory and sexual ethics of Montesquieu. She was the first executive director of the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton at its foundation in 2003. She edited No Differences, How Children in Same-Sex Households Fare, and she directed the development of the New Family Structure Studies website. Every summer, she teaches the dialogues of Plato and Aristotle's moral philosophy to high school students for the Witherspoon Institute's summer seminars. And she is the happy mother, happy and grateful mother of six children. Is there still six? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and, and one of them is named Mariana, correct? Right. That's right. Our second. You know, I just think that's a great name. But, you know, <laughs> that's just probably my, you know, bias. So, as I was saying, do you know that we just completed our high school summer seminar here at the Austin Institute? I didn't. I knew it was going on. How did it go? I think it was amazing. We had 11 students that I know some of them have already subscribed to our podcast and started listening to it. We had great students' evaluations. They loved learning about Plato and Aristotle and contemporary issues. So yeah, probably high school students are you know, demanding content as much as undergraduates. So it was an interesting experience and everything went well. So we invite the parents that are listening also to check that out for next summer for their children. They could go to Princeton and listen to Anna Samuel or they can come here to the Austin Institute. Okay, let's get this podcast started. And the reason you're here, as I said, your main title, you're the academic director of Canavox. That's your main job. What is Canavox? How would you describe it to our audience? It's a network of reading groups around the world now, in English and Spanish, wonderful people who get together to discuss great texts, thought-provoking articles about marriage and sexuality from a natural law, social science, conservative bending philosophy, and yeah, just to, to unite like-minded friends around the world and to learn to talk about the issues in a respectful, articulate, winsome manner. What issues in particular? So we have a long list of issues on the website right now. We're at about 22 issues. They range from what is marriage? How do you define marriage in the public square? To communication in marriage, to issues like why cohabitation isn't great for singles who are thinking about marriage, to 
communication in marriage to pornography and addiction and to in vitro fertilization. We talk about religious liberty as well, same-sex marriage, same-sex parenting, third-party reproduction, surrogacy. The list really goes on and on. It's most of the top hot-button issues surrounding sexual ethics today. Wow. Yeah, I was about to say just all the things that we can't not talk about, but everybody <laughs> would want not to talk about because you know that, you know, you open a can of worms. Is that the expression in English? But at the same time as you realized when you started this that there was a need. So let me ask you, when did Canavox start? How did it start? What was the need that you were detecting? So in 2014, I believe, when I was helping disseminate the new family structure study information to the public. And, and, and wait, wait, parenthesis, maybe we, we should say a couple of words on what that was. Yes, yes, yes. So Dr. Margaret Neris, who was one of the founders of the Austin Institute, University of Texas sociologist, conducted this great research on how children from different family structures fare. And this was just before the Supreme Court case on gay marriage, Obergefell. And the million-dollar question at the time, the question everyone wanted to know was, how do kids fare from same-sex parented homes? Are the kids all right? Are they doing just as well as children from nuclear families? Or are the children suffering in these family forms? And so this study sought to answer that question because it mattered a great deal to public policy discussions leading up to the legalization of gay marriage. And so there was a great deal of polemics surrounding his study because he found, first of all, that there weren't all that many stable same-sex households to be found in the first place. The same-sex households showed a great deal of instability. They were usually not the pure form that advocates wanted to exist. It wasn't the two women who married and then decided to either adopt and raise a child or to create a child through IVF or to two men who got together and adopted and then decided to create a child with surrogacy and IVF. No, the vast majority of the same-sex parented households came from a history of a great deal of brokenness. These were usually children of heterosexual couples who then divorced and then were ping-ponging between different households, one gay, the other straight, or the other single-parented. And so it was really hard to find what progressives thought was the gold standard of the same-sex household. And because it didn't exist, it was really hard to show that the kids were all right. But what did exist showed that the children were not doing well. And what I think the new family structure study showed was that we were conducting a huge experiment on children. We were playing Russian roulette with kids and their outcomes. And so conservatives like me thought that it was very imprudent for us to rush headlong into gay marriage when we didn't have good evidence that the children were going to be fine. And when we had lots of evidence for the view that children coming out of unstable backgrounds actually suffered tremendous costs, like much more depression, suicide ideation, high school dropout rates, the whole gamut, right? And so unfortunately, the new family structure study was maligned. And this gets us to Canavox because as I watched this study go through the press and see how progressives basically controlled the sound, the lights, the stage, the podcasts, all the media, 
and they misrepresented the study so tremendously, I realized there was a disconnect between the ivory tower and the public. There was a disconnect between experts and the person on Main Street. And it frustrated me tremendously to see that really good academics working on this question could not get through to the public because the media was so biased. So this showed in me a desire to create some sort of an institution where we could connect the average person on the street with really great academic information that was trustworthy, past the highest standards of academic review, that was accessible to the average person. So you didn't have to have a PhD in sociology to understand, right? So I wanted to create some sort of way to get really great ideas into language that the average person could understand. Couple that with amazing personal stories that put flesh and blood to the data, that put a beating heart to the natural law arguments, that expressed in human compassionate storytelling type of language what more theoretical studies and philosophical treatises were saying so that the average person can learn to speak truth in a way that appealed not only to the mind but to the heart in a way that would appeal to anybody of goodwill. So that was really the genesis of Canavox, the frustration with the response to the new family structure study. And then we founded Canavox before the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. But then after that ruling, it just created more and more of a demand for Canavox among the public. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that basically while the progressive case is made in the best possible way, and I wouldn't want to say, you know, that it's flawed. Maybe one day we will discover even that all households are equal and there is absolutely no difference. As a child of divorce, I would say, no, it's not equal to be a child of divorce over a stable family. So, But maybe, you know, one day I will discover that I have some pros that other people don't have. But it sounds to me that what you're saying is that we have the best possible argument on the progressive side and we are instead straw man arguments on the conservative side so that marriage and a stable family and healthy dating and chastity was only presented with the worst possible arguments and never with the good ones. Cause that Yeah. I mean, sort of. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the progressive side presented the best possible arguments. One of the things we found was that logos or an appeal to reason was not the standard that was happening in the public square. What was happening was an appeal to ethos, appeal to passion, appeal to sentimentality. And so the left was controlling the debate, not because they had the strongest arguments, but because they had the more flashy sound bites, perhaps the better marketing, and the stories that appealed to the heartstrings. And that is something I think we learned tremendously as conservatives. I think conservatives thought, well, so long as we have the best arguments, so long as we have the best data, we're going to win this. And I think that was naive. I think we just did not imagine we would be with the other side wasn't going to be playing by the rules of reason. Even if we have the best ideas, you need to engage with the culture, which is also part of, you know, of our job here at the Austin Institute. There is the promoting the research of the scholars, but then there is bringing this research to the people. And it's actually something that this podcast is also doing, like as I'm speaking with you right now, but also as we're presenting books or as we're discussing papers, mm -hmm. right? So try to bring it down and try to bring in, as you're saying, to the person on the street. So 
how is it that the person, you know, the average teenager in this case, because I know that Naox is also reaching high schoolers starting this new project, but like, how does the average person get in touch? How does one become a member? Right, right. You just come to our website. So www.canavox, C-A-N-A-V-O-X.com. And it's really easy to either sign up for a group if you want to be a participant or start your own group. It's all free. It's free and it's easy to start for our pro syllabus. Our professional syllabus is for any parent or adult. If you're a minor or if you're in college, there's a different process and it's on the website, but it's pretty straightforward and simple. Okay. Let me ask you this. Is it religiously oriented in any way? Because I mean, I understand it's a conservative case for marriage, conservative or natural law based maybe, but is it religiously oriented in any way? Does it require to believe in God to agree with the things that kind of right. tries to defend? Right. So no. So basically we tend to appeal to people of faith. So most people who join Canavox are people of faith who want to learn how to defend their views in secular language. And that's part of the reason they come is because they say, I know what I believe, but when I try to explain this to people who aren't believers or I go to the public square, I can't just say Genesis says, you know, I need a better argument than that. And so this drives a lot of people of faith to come, whether they're Jewish or we've had a lot of Muslims as well. I shouldn't say a lot. We've had some Muslims come and we're so happy to see our Muslim brothers and sisters join us on this. But I will say that the natural law arguments, you know, natural law does defend the existence of God. So natural law itself points to a creator. What natural law does not do is definitively say which Which one is the right one, right? So that's the beauty of it. So people can come and they don't have to check their faith at the door. They don't have to leave their faith behind. But in our reading groups, we do challenge people to switch gears. So it's not that we're anti-religious in our groups, but what we're trying to do is practice speaking in a totally different language, appealing to science and philosophy and history and psychology and psychiatry even, because we even have psychological studies in our reading groups, so that people become well-versed in all of these other great languages that showcase truth. That leads me to my question. Have you noticed a change? Like, do you see people grow? Not just in the way they defend, but also in what they themselves understand about the oh topics. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, Mariana. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is most rewarding of being in a reading group. Time and again, I see people come, they're frustrated, they're angry, they're upset by what's happening in the culture, and they're just holding it all inside. And then they come to a group. And first of all, they see people that they recognize from their town and they didn't know that that person was also on our side of the debate. So you'll get these funny conversations like, oh my gosh, you know, the lady on the swim team, I didn't know you were a conservative on marriage. And so there's these great like aha moments. So that's really good not to feel like you're alone and you realize, wow, I thought my town was so liberal, but there's 50 people on this Canavox email list, all people in my town. It's just that everybody's in hiding. So that's one of the great things, this discovery that you're not alone. And over the course of the weeks, as people calm down and they see the arguments, they become, their emotions just shift entirely. And then they go from being upset or even afraid or shy, shy about speaking about these things to more confident, more excited, better humored, you know, the ability to be lighthearted even, and to be more prudent 
in what they choose to say to people who think differently because they've gotten a chance to practice in reading group. And one person will say, well, I wouldn't put it that way. I think this is a better way of explaining this. And so the reading groups are the safe place to practice your talking points and your friends help you identify what is the most convincing way to put things. So I do see transformation and I see people becoming just more open with people. They go from being like closeted conservatives to just more natural, just being more comfortable being who they are and saying what they believe. And that gives me a great deal of joy to see. Yeah, I do think you're doing great work. And as I said at the beginning, I mean, you started in Princeton, but then where are you now? Like with Canavas? Oh my goodness. I mean, I've lost track. We, I think we're nearing the 300 reading group mark all over the world. So we are all over South America. We have some groups in Canada. And I think we're in every U.S. state now. I mean, we definitely have people in Alaska. Texas is a huge hotspot. We've got a lot of Canavoxians in Texas. But then thinking to the rest of the world, we're in several European countries. We're in Spain. We're in France. We're in Germany. We've had Portuguese reading groups as well. And then further east, we have Singapore, actually. We have a state leader in Singapore who's very active. We have some in Chinese mainland. We have Australians involved. Thank goodness we're growing and we're translating as fast as we can to reach new places. Which shows this is not a request of some people in the right in the U.S. It's more a request that is deep in our heart of understanding, if not defending what we already believe, but it's understanding what it is that we are defending. So understanding that why is marriage good the way it is as a permanent and exclusive relationship. So we have three tracks. If you're a young professional or a married parent, we have the pro, so Canavox Pro. And then we have a track for those who are in college, and we call it Canavox Varsity. And if you're in middle school or high school, the track is called Canavox JV. You are the mother of six. So I therefore assume that the reason you're doing this is that you are discovering time and again with them growing up that there is a need to address some of these issues very early on. How do you make sure that in that case, the content is age appropriate? Yeah. And yeah, let's take it from there. That's a great question, Mariana, because it's been one of the biggest challenges, really. So the way Canavox works is that I'm the academic director. I'm in charge of the reading lists, but I rely on a group of 45 state leaders around the world. So every time we want to add a new subject or reading to our curriculum, I bring it to these 45 state leaders who are handpicked. They go through a rigorous interview process and then they go through years of training. I meet with them every month in seminars where we're constantly forming our consciences, constantly in dialogue about these issues, keeping up to date with what's going on. And they have to okay any materials that make it on the reading list. So this isn't just me saying, oh, it would be great to read this for Canavox. It's a wide array of very prudent people from many different faiths, all weighing in on the quality of our readings. So when it comes to our high school and middle school content, we've done a lot of testing and we've had to throw a lot of things out and start over again because precisely there's an art to knowing how much is too much for a certain age and how much do they really need to know. And unfortunately, we live in times when Young people do need to be exposed to the dark realities out there so that we can get to them first as parents, educate them so that when they confront 
a false ideology on the street, whether it's the transgender ideology or whether it's their peers introducing them to a pornography video or whether it's a teacher who has the rainbow agenda in her reading assignments, right? The child has already heard, seen, kind of done that at home and knows what their family thinks and knows the reasons why their family thinks a certain way so that they're so much stronger when they confront it out in the quote unquote real world and they're ready to take it on. So basically the short answer, Mariana, is that there's an art to picking this and we also listen to parents a lot. But thankfully, the parent feedback we've gotten from our participants has been very positive and parents are very grateful to us, helping them decide how much to tell their kids. Yeah, I've heard already from students at the young age that they feel like they should say something. They don't know how to say something about what they believe. So I'm sure you can provide a lot of help there. But I would like to ask you again, we had one podcast, at least in pornography by now, that was discussing you know, how early kids are exposed to it. And it's as early as eight years old. So could we say that in that sense, what you're saying is particularly true, that there needs to be a preemptive exposure in a good way, like preparing you Yes. Yes. And, you know, this is by far, I would say, the hardest part is convincing parents, really great parents who've always practiced modesty in their speech. They're trying to protect their children from the slime out there. And it's really hard for a lot of parents to roll up their sleeves and say, okay, we have to start telling them that they can't watch TikTok because the suggested videos that are going to be coming up are actually really inappropriate and they start to desensitize you, my daughter, to what's appropriate behavior on screen. It's a slippery slope. And it's hard to look at your 10-year-old and have to explain things to her, right? But this is the world we live in. And our children, I believe, as a person of faith, will get the grace and the strength they need to face the times they live in with grace and with strength and with courage. And we parents have to facilitate that and empower them. They will feel street smart. They will feel more confident when we equip them with the truth, not with fairy tales, not with white lies about sex, with the truth spoken for their age. Yeah. As parents, we have to parent for this new time. Yes. Somehow when you say about parents or about teacher, you can't decline your responsibility as a parent or as a teacher, but someone will do that. So if you're not parenting your child, then TikTok will be parenting your child. And same with teaching. I say, I'm not teaching you about sex in the proper way. You'll get the information somewhere else and you'll learn. Yeah. I, I understand that it can be embarrassing, but it's probably, you know, the greatest calling of being a parent is that the job doesn't end when they start going to school. That's actually probably even more so today, the moment it really starts. So Anna, I have one question for you that is more based on like your experience and the time you spent with Canavox. So what do you think is the greatest enemy of healthy relationships today? I think the sentimental view that love and my personal happiness is central to life. I do think that divorce is actually the biggest atom bomb that we've had in society. I really think that the divorce revolution, the no-fault divorce revolution, and the view that when I fall out of love, when I'm not feeling satisfied anymore, I have to move on and find something better. I think that sentiment is so toxic to children, 
to the welfare of children that we bring into the world. I think it's so toxic to our own happiness and to society. And unfortunately, that sentiment pervades most of Hollywood and novels and everything, right? So I think we have to be really on guard against that. I had no idea we agreed so much also on this. I mentioned I'm a child of divorce, but I would, you know, with all the love I have for my parents, I keep bringing the, the no-fault divorce in particular, right? So that just my feeling justifying whatever action, regardless of their consequences, and I have no control over my feeling, which is the other thing. And then the teaching, right? That love is never for free. Love is never forever. You always need to work to make sure that it stays there. Yeah. All the messages that divorce has spread in our world, probably the root cause of so much distress that we see. And I know that the permanence of marriage is one of the topics addressed in what, you know, when you discuss in the Canavox group, what is marriage? And again, the topics are wider than that. It's about dating. It's about friendship. It's about love for every, you know, for people that do not think the way we think. Again, it's about pornography too. I don't know if I'm forgetting anything, but I'm sure I am because it's like 22 issues. So probably I'm not mentioning them all, but um, well, the, yeah, the in vitro fertilization, surrogacy. But let me ask you this. Our audience can look at this in our website. We have it linked to our podcast. They're welcome to send us an email too if they want to have more information. But my question, my last question for you is this. If you were a young adult today, what would be the main reason for you not to do what everyone else does, but to look for your own answer instead? Gosh, I think the main reason would be just seeing all around me the carnage. You know, I do think that if you're a young person today, you see heartbreak. Even I'm turning on the radio, listening to pop culture songs. When I was in my 20s, songs were about love. They were about romance. I turn on the radio today. I hear Justin Bieber singing about loneliness. I hear rap songs just talking about heartache. Pop culture itself is screaming out for help. It is just remarkable how much hurt there is. So I think just looking around and saying, this isn't normal. Like this that I'm seeing everywhere around me is not normal and something else is possible. I have to find a way out of this so that I can find a new normal for myself that isn't so painful. Somehow what you're saying, it sounds very obvious. Like if you're a young adult, you're healthy enough that you can afford your basic needs and you're healthy, then you should be happy. And if you're not happy... It might be that maybe there are some things you should cover about your private life and the way you develop your relationships. And and we know from the studies, and it's, it is, it breaks everyone's heart, but from the studies, the young and healthy population is not happy at all. And people that are in college and therefore can't afford college are also not happy at all. Yeah, I think that, Anna, your point is great. You want to be happy. So that's the reason why you should be brave enough to go against the current because the current doesn't seem to be going into a happy spot. We can tell our audience again to look at your website if they want to know more, if they want to start their own group. I know that this podcast, you know, people listen to this podcast also in my home country in Italy. So I don't know if you have groups there yet. Maybe not in the north. Maybe I don't know. But anyway, the invitation is open to everyone. And I want to thank you again, Anna, for your clarity, for all your effort in this very important issues. And thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mariana. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. 
Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.